Uh, I called this section The Lonely Savior. Uh, it might be surprising, some of the things I'm going to say, if you know some of the literature and what people think about Samson, but if you've been paying attention for the past uh, three weeks, maybe what I'm about to say is not that surprising, at least based on what I have said. But uh, we'll look at the entire chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, far and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, Entice him, and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Every one of us will give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your strength lies, and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Look, you've mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room. But he broke them off his arms like a thread. Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass, when she pestered him daily with her words, and pressed him, so that his soul was vexed to death, that he told her all his heart, and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak, and be like any other man. Then Delilah saw that he told her all his heart. When Delilah saw that he told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. 
They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. And the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our god has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened, when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. And Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple, so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. About 3,000 men and women were on the roof, watching while Samson performed. When Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson took, uh, took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one in his right and the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel twenty years. Amen. Well, if you're in the mood for a love story on this Valentine's Day, you probably should have stayed home this evening. Uh, what we see tonight really is going to be a tragedy with respect to love. We're going to see our lonely Savior's downfall, and it will come from the woman that he loves. He's going to be by, betrayed by the woman uh, that he has put his life into, the woman that he cares for. And we must remember that the main tragedy isn't so much Samson's unperceived, uncontrollable lust, or his supposed vengefulness. The problem lies in Israel and their servitude to the Philistines and their complacency and their happiness to be just simply going with the flow. And it all stems from their love and worship of gods rather than the one true God. And if you remember in Judges chapter 10, we see all these gods that they're worshiping and one set of gods were the gods of the Philistines. So the people have grown complacent. The people have had their problems and issues. The people are under their servitude of the Philistines. And they're perfectly complacent uh, with that. So much so that they're willing to hand over the Savior. They're willing to hand over the Deliverer, Samson. We have these 3,000 Judahites in chapter 15 who say, We're just coming to grab you. We're going to hand you over to the Philistines. Please come with us. They don't listen to their God. They don't listen to Yahweh's deliverer. And as such, God is going to depart from them. But the wonderful thing to see in this book is the fact that God still provides salvation anyway. God is going to judge. God does judge. But he also provides the way of salvation. Now, if you remember the judges cycle we've seen, it's this degeneration of Israel uh, this canonization of Israel, they become more like the nations around them. They were supposed to be different. Their holiness, their separateness plays an important role tonight. Their separateness plays an important role tonight when we consider that Samson is a Nazarite who was supposed to be set apart 
to do something specific. He was supposed to be unlike any other person, being this one who was a Nazarite from the womb. And Israel is supposed to be a different nation. But the problem is they become like every other nation that is around them. And so we see these cycles. We see this uh, sin, this idolatry that Israel engages in. Then we see their oppression, uh, God's punishment, God handing them over to their enemies. And then we see God deliver them. But usually in between there, there's a cry. There's a cry of Israel, not repentance, but a cry in pain. But under the Samson narrative, there is no cry in pain. They're just perfectly happy. But yet God is still pleased to save them anyway, even when the sod cycle is not followed. Now, I think the problem is clear in Judges 16. Now, the problem we've seen throughout the Samson narrative is the complacency of the people. But the problem really is the departure of Yahweh because of the complacency of the people. There's what the people do. There's the sins that they engage in. Then there's the result of that. And the result of that for Israel is God is going to depart from them. God is very long-suffering with them. God is very patient with them. But as we know in Israel's history, God eventually kicks them out of the land because they do not worship the one true God. We see the escalation of sin. We see its entrenchment in the minds of the people and the life of the people. And then eventually in Israel's history, we do see exile because of their sin. And all this points to the fact that salvation can only come from Yahweh. Because man does not look for salvation. Salvation can only come from God. And that is the overarching lesson in this book. It's the degeneration of Israel. But uh, juxtaposed with that is the amazing grace of God to save really an undeserving people. And with respect to the Philistines, God is going to use a lonely savior to bring that about. And so in Judges 16, we see Israel's deliverance. Uh, the beginning of their deliverance from the Philistines by Yahweh's lonely deliverer. This is the climax. This is the deliverance. This is the beginning of the deliverance. And the key word here is lonely because it highlights Israel's wickedness. It highlights the fact that the judge is going to be by himself. And so we'll look at this lonely savior under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the fall of a lonely savior in verses 1 through 22. And then secondly, we'll see the deliverance by a mighty Savior in verses 23 through 31. So the fall of a lonely Savior, verses 1 through 22. The fall of a lonely Savior. Then we're going to see the deliverance by a mighty Savior in verses 23 through 31. So let's first look at the fall of a lonely Savior in verses 1 through 22. Now again, context is critical. The occasion against the Philistines is of God. We see the overarching verses for this narrative. It helps us see and read the narrative is Judges 13, verse 5, and Judges 14, verse 4. We see with the birth narrative, he's not going to have his hair cut. He's going to be a Nazarite to God. And his purpose, he's going to begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Remember the programmatic definition of what a judge was. In Judges 2, it is one who delivers. It is one who saves. Certainly they functioned 
uh, as a judge that we think of with respect to one who holds fast the law, one who uh, distributes and enforces the law, but mainly with respect to judges and the office that we see in judges is that they came to deliver. So he's going to deliver the people. And we see in Judges 14.4, we see with respect to the woman at Timnah, his first wife. And so we see, verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. Because there's complacency, there needs to be a provocation. And the wife at Timnah is, was that occasion uh, that Yahweh used to bring that provocation. We see with respect to Samson marrying this one, we see this, uh, this riddle that they don't like. Uh, they eventually threaten his wife and they say, if you don't tell us, we're going to burn you. And so they, she figures it out from Samson. She vexes his soul. And so he then tells her and then they tell, she tells the Philistines. Then he goes and kills uh, 30 Philistines. It was the spirit of the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 19. Again, the provocation has come. Then we see pride cometh before a fall in Judges 15. Remember, we could laugh through that uh, because we see how silly it is to be an enemy of God. And that's just not, not just a lesson for the heathen. That's a lesson for Israel. It's silly to be an enemy of God. And Israel needed to know that as well. It's silly to go against Yahweh. It's silly to worship Dagon rather than the one true God. And so he grabs these foxes. Somehow he catches them. He ties them together. You know, he... His wife, well, his wife is given away, first of all, and so it leads to this tying of these foxes. He's, he's burning their grain field, and then uh, we see that the Judahites come, and they try to you know, hand him over, and so we see he's on his own. The Judah's not even going to help him anymore. They become wimps, and so then he grabs that jawbone, and he kills a thousand men. So we see he is routing the Philistines. He is doing his job as the judge. He is bringing deliverance. And he is doing it by himself. But the sad reality is, the tragedy is 1511. When they say to him, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? They're happy to worship and happy to honor the Philistines. But they're not happy to honor the one true God. And so the provocation continues. And as I've said, there is a differing, differing views between the modern commentators typically... And the older commentators. The modern commentators say Samson is just doing this all for himself. Samson can't control himself. Samson is just this vengeful, vengeful jerk. Samson's just this lustful guy. Well, the old boys are not as harsh on Samson. The old boys are not as um, mean towards Samson. I usually typically follow them. There's some modern guys are pretty good as well but usually that's a bit of the divide that we see they recognize though he's not perfect and none of Yahweh's servants are perfect but they recognize that he recognizes where his help comes from and I think that helps as we consider what goes on with the harlot at Gaza but also with Delilah as well and so I think in verses 1 through 3 we see his loneliness in that his battle cry is rejected you see, all of what we see in verses 1 through 3 has to do with military strategy. So we see in verse 1, Samson went down to Gaza. One modern commentator says we don't know why he goes down to Gaza. Now it's true. There's nothing said there about why he goes down to Gaza. But we know from 14.4, it is for military purposes. We know from what he's going to do with the gates, it's for military 
purposes. And he's going to go down to the main city, the capital city of Philistia, and he is going to provoke them on purpose. And so we see what he does here is, uh, is strategic. And so he goes down to Gaza. He sees a harlot there. Some say innkeeper, but it really is harlot. And then it says he went into her. Now, many uh, interpret this as he went and engaged in sexual relations with her. I'm not sure that that's the case. The language of going into her can have a euphemism, but it is used a hundred times in the scriptures. Gordon Hugenberger points this out, but most of those times it does not refer to sexual intercourse. Most of those times it refers to meeting together. Most of those times it refers to people coming and saying hello to one another. We've seen that already. It's used 15 times in Judges, and we see in 13.6 where it says the woman came, and this is his mother, came and told her husband, saying, a man of God came to me. The man of God came to me. And we don't view it in a sexual way. It is also used in 15.1 when Samson wants to go and get his wife. Remember that. Samson wants to go and get his wife, right? It's not just, I'm just this guy who just can't control myself. He wants to go and consummate the marriage. Remember, consummation was an important part of marriages at this time. There was the betrothal, but then there had to be the consummation as well. Otherwise, it was not a marriage. And so what is he going to do? He is going to, he's going to make sure that this happens. And so we see, let me go into my wife but then there's the further explanation, go into her room. So he wants to go see her, but the narrator, or Samson says and adds, that he's going to go into her, into her room for a specific purpose. So it no way indicates that he went into her for sexual reasons. A lot of people do say that. I know what I'm saying is probably the minority view, but there is no indication that he actually does that just because it says he went into her. Now, a good comparison Hugenberger brings out is Joshua 2, Rahab and the spies. When Rahab and the spies go into Rahab, nobody assumes, nobody believes that they're actually doing something heinous. And I think that is a good comparison and a compelling comparison. And also with what we see with what happens in the rest of the narrative and not to mention Judges 2, 17 and 20 highlights that judges aren't perfect, but there is massive, de- is there massive degeneration in all the judges? Again, all, their judge- all the judges have their problems and their issues. You know, Gideon and Jephthah and Samson does have his problems for sure, but in no way indicates that he's as bad as everybody makes him out to be. God's servants need to be godly, but they certainly are not perfect. And we see in Judges 17 that, the Israel, that Israel does not listen to them. Judges 2.17, Israel does not listen to the judges. And what further, I think, cements my position and my view is the fact that's exactly what the Philistines thought. The Philistines thought he was going to see a harlot and he was going to be there all night. Read in verse 1 or verse 2. Oh, we'll get to Delilah in a second. Okay. This, is the, this is the harlot. Okay. But verse 2, when the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. 
They assume he's going to be there all night. And Samson, we've seen, is actually quite the military strategist. I mean, he's got the foxes. He knows they're going to run different ways. I mean, he keeps it to himself that he killed that lion. I think I said to you, if I killed a lion, I would tell you all about it. But he keeps it to himself because he doesn't want to give anything away. He looks jacked. They recognize that. Here's this big guy coming to the wedding and this wedding or the the bachelor party uh, in Judges 14. And they're like, okay, we're going to bring 30 friends because that guy is massive. And so, but nonetheless, he still keeps all of the, the might for sure hidden until it needs to come out. So we've seen he is a military strategist. And we see that in three. Samson lay low till midnight. Not all night, but midnight. So he lays low till midnight. Then he arises at midnight, knowing they're all going to be sleeping. He takes hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulls them up, bar and all. Some suggest that gatehouse would have been two to three stories high. So uh, some say perhaps just the doors within the inner gate, but it says the posts and all possibly. But nonetheless, it is quite the feat. He grabs these gates. He grabs these doors. The point is that Gaza, the main city, is vulnerable. There's an opening. There's a crack in the wall, so to speak. And Samson has brought that. And he's doing it for a specific reason. He's trying to sound the battle cry. And the sad reality is it is rejected. So he grabs these gates. He carries them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, most likely this is the Hebron in Judah. It would have been 40 miles away, not to mention 3,000 feet uh, sort of grade to get to the top of it. So he's taking these gates, he's carrying them up, and so perhaps that also affirms as well that God is with him. He's doing this smug feat of strength, but he's bringing it to Hebron to sound the battle cry. Look, Judah, the ones who just handed me over. Look, I've got the gates of the city. Please come, let's fight, let's go, and we'll run into that city and we'll take out the enemies. We will remove them We will do what we need to do. He's sounding the battle cry. They should have rallied around him. We see that Hebron is the place Caleb inherited. And we know Caleb was a mighty man of valor. But what do we see? Nothing happens. He is on his own. Here's a sign of victory. That's what these gates were. And nobody helps him. Nobody goes with him. He really is the lonely savior. And we see that he's also unloved. And we see how lonely he is by way of the lady, Delilah. So we'll move from the battle cry rejected. No one comes to his aid. No one wants to go and take out the Philistines. He really is on his own. And so he eventually falls in love with a lady named Delilah. This is in verses 4 through 22. The unloved saviors fall. And so we see in verse 4... It happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And so he loves this lady. Delilah could mean one of many things. could mean flirt. It could mean darkness. It could mean weak. Uh, But as far as her identity, she could be a Philistine or she could be a Jew. (laughs) There's no indication on what she is and what her identity is. Now, the valley of Sorek is between Judah and Philistia, so it's perfectly plausible that she could be one or the other. 
And I perhaps lean more to the Jewish side of things, although it's not a hill I'm going to die on, uh, because we do see uh, that she certainly she does have a relationship with the lords of the Philistines, but they offer her money, they don't threaten her. They offer her dough rather than say, we're going to burn your family uh, like they do with the lady at Timnah. Here they say, we're going to give you money instead. They seek to bribe her. Now, as far as what she is, some commentators say she's a harlot as well. But there's no, there's no indication of that. Others actually suggest that it's his wife. He would have been free to remarry. His first wife is dead. And we've already seen that he is willing to follow proper protocol. However, it's in her house. It's not in his house. So I'm not necessarily saying that is the case. But he would have been free to remarry. And it very well could be that it is his wife. Although that's not, necess not necessarily the case. And really the point is not so much the lady that he married. The problem is what he says to her. Isn't that the main problem? That is really the main issue. Marrying her isn't bad. It's listening to her that's wrong. That's Valentine's Day advice, isn't it, for all you husbands out there? Marrying her ain't so bad. Just don't listen to her. And so he shouldn't have listened to her. That was the key problem. He gave away his main task and his main uh, what he was supposed to do. Again, he doesn't threaten. Uh, he doesn't. Uh, uh, yeah, they don't threaten her like they do with Tinder. So there is this plan. She seems to love money more than him. You just feel for the guy. I'm sorry. I just feel for him. I know everyone reads it. That guy's awful. He looks at the harlot. He's Delilah. Yeah. I feel for him because he is by himself. I'm not trying to psychologize him. I just, I just feel a little bit. Verse 5. The lords of the Philistines, we see the plan. We know the plan. They come up to her. They say to her, entice him. Find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him. That we may bind him to afflict him. Every one of us, there's five of them. So every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. She's getting 5,500 pieces of silver. We see that she loves money more than him. And if it is his wife, and if she is a Jew, doesn't it make it all the more heinous? Doesn't it make it far worse that his wife and another Jew is handing him over. He really is the lonely savior. And so we see that he does hold his own pretty good three times. He's not going to give it away. I know some people say with the bowstrings, and he's getting a little close to giving away what his secret is and what his task is and all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying he should have given it all away. He shouldn't do that. Uh, but the point is he keeps it pretty good for a while. And so we see... Verse 6, Delilah says to Samson, Please tell me where your strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. If my wife asked me that, I would be like, Why are you asking me that? But Samson uh, doesn't yeah. do that. Verse seven, uh, verse 7, And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet tried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. That's repeated. Any other man. You see, he was set apart to be something... Uh, Nazarite to God and have a specific role. Israel was not supposed to be like any other nation. But he is saying, I will be like any other man. That is one of the key things to see here. I should become weak and be like any other man. So they try it. Verse 8. It's kind of funny too. Remember there's humor here. 
So the Lord of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So they tried the bowstrings. Uh, she sees that she is mocking, uh, he is mocking her, and so she recognizes that in verse 10. And Delilah said to Samson, Look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. And so he says, and this time, let's do new ropes. Verse 11. Samson is probably having a little bit of fun here. So they said to her, If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah takes the new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. And so the new ropes don't work. Now we come to this weave and the new hair, or the, the loom, and what that is. I had to search what that was. What is a weave? What is a batten? No idea what that is. But uh, we see, he says this, uh, Until now you've mocked me, she says, and told me lies. Tell me what, you've, uh, what you may be bound with. And so he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom, and so she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Now again, Samson, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Is that the saying? That's how it goes? I mean, three times she's asked. Three times the Philistines have come. I would have started to ask more questions. But again, yeah. Samson is alone here. And now eventually he uses the R word the razor word. And so we see in verse, verses 15 through 21, his fall. We see the razor that comes to his head and we see how it slows down. He should not mention the R word, razor. Remember, no razor shall come upon his head. That was in Judges 13. And so we see she vexes him. Verse 15. Then she, she manipulates him. She provides emotional manipulation. We saw that with his first wife. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have told me, not told me where your strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily, pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Of course you'll eventually give in. No one can hear, you don't love me, you don't love me. No man can hear from his wife, you don't love me, you don't love me, unless you do this, 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 this. I would cave after five minutes. He goes a long time. I like the way Davis kind of illustrates it or uh, uses words to, paint the set, uh, to give, paint the scene for us. He says, Delilah likely turned on the relational arguments about trust and intimacy, about how we must all be vulnerable. And that women really, uh, really do crave men who are willing to be the latter. And Delilah suspected her psychology would be all the more convincing while she spread her long, soft hair against Samson's mighty chest and stroked his biceps with her soft hand. Don't you love me, Samson? Don't you love me, Samson? Don't you love me, Samson? Yes, I love you. Fine. Here is what it is. And so he gives the revelation. It shows he is aware, by the way, of what his task is and what his office is. Again, he's not this big, dumb ogre that some people make him out to be. So we see in verse 17, 
he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. He was set apart, he was different, he was holy to God in this way. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And the hair, there's no strength in it, but it's what it signifies. It signifies his office, it signifies that Yahweh made him separate, it signifies that Yahweh had set him apart. Poole says, not that, not that his hair was in itself the seat or cause of his strength, but because it was the chief condition of that vow, whereby as he stood obliged to him, so God was pleased graciously to engage himself to fit him for and assist him in that great work to which he called him. But upon his violation of his condition, God justly withdraws his help and leaves him to himself. Which is what we see in verses 18 through 21. We see, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. It slows down. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had departed from him. There's that revelation with a thud. There's the theological reason the Lord has departed. If he is not going to be separate, if he's not going to be the Nazarite, where does his strength lie? That's a lesson for the people. If they're not going to be separate, how are they supposed to be the people of God? And so the Philistines, they torture him. They gouge out his eyes, verse 21. And brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters. He became a grinder in the prison. They finally got their tormentor and Yahweh's deliverer, Israel's savior. They finally got the man who had been causing so many issues. Now, if I were the Philistines, I would have a barber 24-7 right there with Samson. They should have paid attention to that, right, with the hair. And so we do get this little glimmer of hope in verse 22. I think I said... Before I heard a guy preach on this, he stopped at 21. He stopped at 21. But there's 22 and 23 and 24 and following. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. So there's this little glimmer of hope with a little bit of hair, stubble beginning to grow back out of that bald head that's going to help us when we get to yeah, the Philistines uh, fall as Samson does one last feat of strength. But one thing I think we can glean from this section is really the sad reality of God's departure. God's people are separate. God's people are holy. And we have to consider what it means for us to be different. There is the reality that local churches certainly not the universal church, but local churches, if she looks like the world, is she really a church at all? 
If she resembles the world around her, is she really different and separate? We are supposed to be different. We are supposed to function differently. We are coming to another country when we gather on the Lord's Day. And when we do that, we should uh, resemble the country of which we are entering. And so Davis says, She is a people who does not know that Yahweh may depart from her. Just as a church may believe that God would never write Ichabod, you know what Ichabod's from, right? From First Samuel, over its denominational headquarters. That's why we have to be on guard. That's why we have to be watchful as a church. It is true that a God, Christ can come and remove a lampstand from local churches. Now, thanks be to God, true churches. Thanks be to God, the universal church shall always be kept. But there is that sad reality. Now, as far as Christians go, individuals go, God will never leave us nor forsake us. But I do think chapter 5 of our confession, paragraph 5, highlights something very important. That God's people can go through seasons where it feels like God is not near. And so paragraph 5 of chapter 5 says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. God will never leave us. God will never forsake us, but there might be times where he removes that countenance for a specific reason and purpose to teach us that we always need to rely on him, to teach us that we always need to call upon him. And thankfully, we can. We certainly see that we have a Savior who has fallen here, the fall of this lonely Savior. But thankfully, there is a mightier Savior who will bring deliverance, a mightier God that we can call upon in our times of distress. So that's the lonely the fall of a lonely Savior. Let's then look secondly at the deliverance of a mighty Savior. Uh, and this will be a little bit shorter than what we just did. Verses 23 through 31. And the mighty Savior is God. Isn't That's the mighty Savior. It's going to do it by way of Samson, but it is God who provides the way. And God uses Samson, but it is God. And that is what Israel needed to know. And we see the ridicule of the mighty Savior, of the divine Savior, in verses 23. Uh, well, the ridicule of the Saviors in verses 23 through 27. But we see the ridicule of the divine Savior in verses 23 and 24. Again, there's a solemn lesson by way of the Philistine stupidity. And we see that they're attributing all that has happened to Dagon. I guess they didn't have verse 20. They didn't know that the Lord had departed from him. So they think it's their God. They think it's Dagon. Again, they think that their God is the one who has brought this great victory. And we know that Dagon is the butt of the joke in 1 Samuel chapter 5 as he falls over and he has to be propped back up and he falls again and his arms fall off and they have to glue him back together. So what kind of God is that? 
And so we see in verse 23, the mocking, the ridicule. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, our god has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. They should have known better. Romans 1, O man is without excuse. Israel should know better. Again, Judges 10, they worship the gods of the Philistines. And so Israel might be thinking, well, maybe it is Dagon we ought to worship. And as we're going to see, that is not the case. So they see Samson come in, they're attributing it, they're mocking Samson, they're mocking the God of Israel as they praise Dagon, and that was kind of the key things, what Samson was supposed to do, so that God would not be mocked. But now God is being mocked. And so we see the supposed deliverer is used as an occasion to mock the God of Israel. And again, the point is, God is not to be mocked whether it's with outright blasphemy or with silent complacency. And so Samson then comes in, verse 24. The people saw him. They praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. Again, they're ridiculing Yahweh. They're praising Dagon, who is not a God at all. And they're mocking the Savior, Samson, and they're mocking the God of Israel. And they continue to mock. They continue uh, to ridicule. They continue to revile and blaspheme. Verse 25, so it happened when their hearts were merry, that they said, call for Samson, that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison he performed for them. They stationed him between the pillars. That's a dumb move. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Oh, setting the stage for something glorious. Verse 27, Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. About 3,000 men and women on the roof watching Sam, uh, while Samson performed. So they're ridiculing, they're mocking, they're filled with pride. They think they've won the battle. And then we see verses 28 through 31. And we see the deliverance by the Savior. And it starts with the cry of the weak deliverer. With the one who is Yahweh's servant. This is the climax of the narrative. And it includes the cry of the weak servant. Now again, there's the divide between the old boys and the new boys. The, old, the new boys say it's a cry for personal, personal vengeance. They gouged out my eyes, so Lord, please avenge me. Or it's a cry of faith for deliverance and righteous justice as the judge. Now, you probably know my view on that. I go with the latter. I think it is a cry of justice. God answers that prayer, doesn't he? Just like when Samson cried out, I need food, I need water, in Judges 15, God answered that prayer as well. Matthew Henry has a lengthy quote, but I think it helps illustrate this reality. And remember, Samson is in Hebrews 11, a man who did many things by faith. So Poole says, this prayer was not an act of malice and revenge, but of faith and zeal for God, who was there publicly dishonored, and justice in punishing their insolences and vindicating the whole commonwealth of Israel, which was his duty, as he was judged to do. And this is manifest from hence, because God who heareth not sinners, and would never use his omnipotency to gratify any man's impotent malice, 
did manifest by the effect that he accepted and owned his prayer as the dictate of his own spirit. And that in this prayer, he mentions only his personal injury, the loss of his eyes, and not their indignities to God and his people, must be ascribed to that prudent care which he had and declared upon former occasions, of deriving rage and hatred of the Philistines upon himself alone and diverting it from the people. For which end I conceive this prayer was made with an audible voice, though he knew they would entertain it only with scorn and laughter, which also he knew would quickly be turned into mourning. The point is, he cries out to God, and God answers the prayer. He says in verse 28, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And we see the Lord answers. Verse 29, And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed in his death were more than he had killed in his life. There seems to be divine approval, especially with that last sentence in verse 30. He kills many. We see that thousand with the donkey's jawbone. But there's more that he kills here. Because Israel was under servitude to these Philistines. And God did what he said he would do in Judges 13. It would be an occasion. He would begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So he dies doing his job. He dies doing his task. He cries out in his weakness and God answers. And we see he is uh, buried uh, with his family in verse 31. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Now again, the main thing about this is the sad reality of worshiping Dagon. But the hope, but there is another thing to take away as well with respect to the cry that Samson gives in verse 28, but also in chapter 15. Namely, there's the comforting reminder of God's deliverance. The comforting reminder that we can call upon our God in any situation and he hears us. And thankfully, we can do so not because we are perfect, but we can do so because God is perfect. A church can cry out in repentance, and God will forgive. Christians who make up the church can cry out in repentance, and God will forgive. The church, Christians who make up the church can cry out in distress, and God will forgive. We don't have to jump through these ascetic hoops. Sometimes I think we do that as Christians, don't we? I engaged in a sin. I did something that I shouldn't. What's God going to do to me? What's going to happen? Will God ever forgive me? Can I ever? Yes, go to God always. Faith goes directly to God. Davis says, of course there will be objections. Someone will argue that Israel, like Samson, did not deserve Yahweh's help. So what else is new? 
those who marshal such objections are frequently those who have little sense of their own depravity. And what of the Christian who has stupidity and miserably failed his Lord? Should he not find hope in seeing that being cast down does not mean cast off? He sh- should he not rejoice that he can call on Yahweh even from Dagon's temple? And I like stanza two of the first hymn we sung this evening. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged to take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who with all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You've sinned. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You're struggling with something. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That is where we go. Faith always goes to God in our times of distress, even if it is of our own doing. We can always go to our God. And even if we're in Dagon's temple with our eyes gouged out and our tongue cut off and being mocked by everybody around us, we can cry out to God and God will answer us and God will provide for us and God will give us all that we need. And the reason he will do so is because of Christ Jesus. Remember, Samson is a type of Christ. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Nazarite. Jesus is the Nazarene. We see that language of Nazar in Matthew chapter 2. And one thing to highlight as well is that Jesus himself was what? A lonely savior. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. And he went to the cross. He went to die for an undeserving people. He suffered shame. He suffered torture on that shameful implement by himself so that you and I can have life with God. And we have to remember, brother, it is only he, it is only Christ, it is only he, the lonely Savior, that could bring the salvation that we need because there's a salvation that we never sought, but thankfully there's a salvation that we need. And it comes in Christ Jesus. Remember, that's the main point of the book of Judges. That God is pleased to save his people from their sins. Well, let us pray. (coughs) Our gracious God, we are thankful for your reminders tonight about the salvation that we have in Christ. And the reminders of the fact that we can call upon you in times of distress. And you will hear us and you will answer according to your will. And we are thankful for that. And so often we forget that. So often we don't draw near to you like we ought. So often we think we are are filthy and we are wicked. And there are many sins that we still engage in, O Lord. But help us to remember that they are forgiven in Christ. And that we can call upon you and look to you. And you are faithful to forgive us. You are faithful to help us. You are faithful to give us peace when we are anxious. You are faithful to provide for us when we are in great need. And you are always the God that we can go to. And thank you for that. Thank you for teaching us the seriousness of sin and what that means and how it is a terrifying thing for your favor to depart. It's a terrifying thing for uh, your favor to be removed. And so uh, we pray that for those who are not in Christ Jesus, that you would save them, that you would give them new life, that uh, you give good things. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust on this side of heaven, but Uh, We pray that they would believe upon Christ and have everlasting life. And we know that only you can bring that about. And so 
Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your kindness that comes in Christ Jesus. We pray that you'd help us now as we go out into the world and as we uh, seek to live as a holy people in the world. Help us to be faithful. Help us to do what we are called to do, even as we engage in various tasks that are common and still good. But help us to do so in a way that uh, is becoming of you. Help us to do so in that we honor and glorify you in whatever we do. And give us that strength that we need. And help us uh, to remember we can always call upon you. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. amen.